Hold on, bring it back. Hey, it's Travis Ford, executive producer of the Endurance Town USA podcast, brought to you by our friends at Race Roster, a place where listeners like you can escape your daily grind and connect with your community of like-minded people. Today, Samantha Pruitt, our host and CEO and founder of Race Slow, sits down with Ian Adamson, the most successful adventure athlete of all time. He has 10 world championship wins, 22 world championship podium finishes, 18 international adventure race championship titles, and a gold, silver, and bronze medal from the X Games. He is also a three time Guinness World Record holder for endurance kayaking. And after decades of professional race experience, which include product development for many of the running shoes we wear today, Ian is now president of World OCR, the world's governing body for all obstacle racing, and is currently working hard to make OCR an Olympic recognized sport. Sam and I sat down with Ian Adamson in his backyard on a beautiful afternoon in San Luis Obispo, and I'll let her take it from there. Ian? Yes. How are you? Better than ever. Excellent. So we're at your house right now in your backyard. Your, I should say, San Luis Obispo house. Yes. Yeah, this is fantastic. Thanks for inviting us over. Of course. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. And um, we're here to get to know you a little bit more as an individual, as a human being, less of an industry leader that you are, and we'll touch bases on that too. But there's a lot of things about you actually I don't know. So this is fun for me to be able to ask you questions candidly and have a little bit of a dialogue and maybe do a little bit of a deeper dive into you and um, who you are, what makes you tick. Sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's hear a little bit about where you grew up and your family history, your roots. <laughs> I'll, I'll start from the very beginning. How about that? Yes. So I, I am the illegitimate child, commonly called a bastard, illegitimate Excellent. child of <laughs> a Chinese father and English mother. I was born in Australia, actually. Okay. My mother was a nurse, and she hooked up with the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds the, reasonable. Yep, it's a good, it's a good idea. A good idea. The outcome apparently was okay in my view, anyway. Right. Um, and uh, my father was my biological father, who I've never met, was from Singapore, and his parents were from China. Oh. Wow. So my heritage is actually Chinese. Excellent. I'm half Chinese, okay. uh, racially, I guess. So I'm half Chinese, and then half sort of English. My mother's mother was from the Middle East somewhere. Uh, and I don't know where exactly. I've actually got pictures of her. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Jewish. So that makes me Jewish because it's Wow. You, know, you have a little maternal. bit of everything going on. A little bit of everything. I am a true a mutt and a bastard is what I say. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> like, a like a like a good little dog. <laughs> yeah. But you were actually birthed in Australia. I was born in Australia. I was born in Sydney. Okay. Yeah. Um, my adopted parents, my real parents I call them were both uh, academics, and they taught all sorts of odd things. My father was strangely, uh, his PhD was in agriculture, but his work was in um, climate change. Wow. So this was back in the 70s. Before it was 80s, even a thing. Before it was a thing. His, his colleagues were fig- figuring it out. Okay. So I got schooled. Uh, as a kid, you know, all 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 through my schooling, from you know, a little kid through to university, he was poring over giant satellite images of things and doing core samples out of the Rift Valley in Africa and Antarctica and on and on and on. So he and his colleagues were quite alarmed back in the by the eighties. They were very alarmed about what was going on. So and you clearly, grew up it's in that grew up in the environment. 
my mother was she's a double PhD. She was they they call her the Germans call her Doctor Doctor Frau Doctor. Wow. Because you include your husband, so he's a doctor and she was a doctor doctor. <laughs> her expertise was in plant physiology, but her second PhD was in women in education. So mm-hmm. she was she was leading in Australia women in education at a radio show uh, on the on the uh, on ABC and whatnot for many many years. Both of them cutting edge. I mean, seriously, for the time they were inquisitive people. Yeah. They asked Brain a lot of questions. Almost. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, you know, and I can't claim any intelligence from either my, <laughs> from any of the people. Influence, no, yes, influence, influence for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it proves somewhat the uh, the idea of uh, environment versus or nature versus nurture. Yeah. Although I did meet my biological mother, and there are uh, uh, there's absolutely no question she was my mother. When <laughs> mannerisms, how old were you? forty. Wow. Manner things that you would not expect: speech patterns, mannerisms, things that you would think, "Ah, oh, that's got to be environmental." No. Fascinating. Yeah, it was fascinating to me. Yeah, that's very cool. Are you still in touch with her? Not really. Mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't more of a choose her as a friend. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> it was enough. it was a really good experience. Yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in Australia. Do you have siblings then? I do. Uh, brother and sister, both in Australia now. They they actually had moved out. My brother lived in the U.S. for quite a while. Married a uh, American woman. Um, so I. We actually moved with our parents quite at quite young age. Moved around a lot. They went. They made uh, TV shows for the Open University in England uh, in the early seventies. So we lived out there for a while. Went to school in England. Came back with English accents as you do when you're little kids. Um, and then uh, I moved to the US in ninety one. How old were you? Twenty six. And what was your intention coming to the US? Well, I worked for a biomedical en- engineering company, and I was a design engineer. And they were moving the factories from Sydney to Miami Lakes. I actually moved to Denver area. Um, and one of the reasons I moved, I did the move, was it was a temporary assignment, but I had full designs on going to Boulder and becoming a full-time athlete. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That was, a, that was my goal and exit strategy out of biomedical engineering. When you were young, were you already in athletics? Was that part of this really um, intelligent family you were? <laughs> uh, yeah, they were talented. I was not. I was, I'm a grit athlete, mm. uh, meaning... I can grind it out, and I'll figure out a way to do it. But uh, my brother and sister were very talented, uh, still very talented. I mean, they could. My sister could sail through the athletic system and, you know, make state level apparently without a whole lot of effort. And I ground it out. So I went for stuff that people hated, like eight hundred and fifteen hundred stuff that was just appallingly painful, mm-hmm. because that was what I had. I could I could suffer. That wasn't a problem. How old were you when you got into sports? I was really young. My grandfather was the uh, was a soccer international for Scotland, and he was also the head of uh, at the time the Australian Soccer Football Federation, so the the national federation for soccer or football. Um, I didn't know much about it at the time. In fact, it's only in rec- it's only in the last five years I really understood what he did. But he had all sorts of stories about. Oh, I was with X, Y, and Z Olympic marathon doing this and that and the other, and you know, as a kid, it's just like, oh yeah, whatever, granddad. Yeah, wasn't turned, cool then. Now no, like, now it's like, holy crap, I had no idea. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so he was, uh, he was basically doing what I'm doing now um, at the international level. He was doing it, you know, full on for a long, long time. I think almost until he passed away, he was involved because he'd been an international um, athlete and he had worked in the federation system. So what was your first sport then? Was it football? It was. Uh, yeah, I guess it was football because I started about six um, and then worked my way through. So I 
was in soccer for quite a long time, about 12 years, ended up as a coach and a ref um, and played at second, uh, it was the, basically the second division in Sydney, which is, I know were like 130 divisions, <laughs> so it was, wasn't a horrible player, but I wasn't as good as my granddad. Mm-hmm. Um, so did that, but I was, and still am, somewhat of a pingy athlete. What does that mean? Pinging, I would ping. Like I would try everything, partly because I liked it. And like ping pong, check this out, check this out. Yeah, pinging, pinging, pinging between right. sports. Mm-hmm. So it was. So I played football, which I really loved. Um, and then I got involved in cycling because my dad was quite a good cyclist. He was a uh, so at forty in the forty plus category. I think it was called veterans in Australia. He was quite good, um, and he performed. You know, he would compete at state national level. Right. And so you know, we're looking at dad riding his road bike going dad dad i want to do that and he, he would be no you're not going to do that until you you know until you really demonstrate you want to do it and then it was like it's gradual process over years of you sure yeah you sure yeah so eventually i started racing road bikes eventually i was i think i was nine wow that's incredibly young to be racing road bikes it was the youngest category for competitive cycling in australia wow. at the time that the <laughs> the categories had fun names um midget I'm sorry, what? Midget. That was the name of that the was a, That category? was a category I started that in the midget. That is now politically incorrect. Yep. Okay. So we started in the midget category. I see. And you could ride a fixed gear 66 ratio bike as a midget. What kind that, of distances? They were quite short, probably less than an hour. Okay. Well, that's not short for a nine-year-old. It's not uh, a sprint. It's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a sprint. I and mean, we were road riding. Okay. Uh, and then the next category was sub-juvenile. <laughs> Oh and then you got a fixed gear to a 72 ratio. Wow. A single gear. It wasn't fixed. It was a free walk. It was a single gear. Yeah. The next category was juvenile. And then you got five gears. And then you went to junior. And you got a full 10 gears. And then you're like back in the day. That was it. And we had, we rode in nylon. And instead of a, you didn't have a chamois in those days. You had Vaseline. Yep. Well. Nylon and Vaseline. <laughs> And we had wool jerseys. Nice. It was, uh, it was the Northern Suburbs uh, Amateur Cycling Club. And it was a, a red jersey with a black stripe across the chest made of wool, awesome. scratchy as shit. Do you still have any of these? I don't know. I doubt it. My brother might or my sister might That'd have them tucked away somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I re- went through the cycling ranks and could get to national level, but very low level. I mean, state, I could make top 10 at that. You know, so cycling and kind of, I did that for a while. I loved it. Uh, stayed in it for quite a few years, and then, and then uh, university got grabbed by uh, canoe and kayak. Okay. It was a, it was a, it was a friend of mine who misled me terribly. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of them do. Yeah, I said, <laughs> we should have those friends. <laughs> we should try this. It'd be really, you'll really like it. It's going to be Super really fun. fun. What are we doing? Yeah. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna paddle our kayaks on the Hawkesbury River. And I thought that sounds really cool. Kind of tranquil river, you know, around Sydney, and uh, he. The first time he did, he said, okay, we need to get to a boat. And so, and we lived on the water in Sydney Harbour. So this is a friend of mine from elementary school. Met him at second grade and this was in university at this point. So he said, oh yeah, you'll love it. Come and uh, we'll do some paddling. So we jumped in some boats and we would start paddling it every morning before university, before class. Class started early, so we started really early. And these paddles got longer and longer and longer. And finally I, had, I was thinking, Graham, what? What's going on here? We're going like hours now. What's going on? He said, well, it's kind of a long race. I mean, we start in the evening up on 
in Parama, uh, you know, out near Windsor somewhere, which is way west of Sydney. And then we paddle all through the night. What? All through the night? You've got to be kidding me. What have you got us into? And of course, I paid the entry fee and everything. This one, like, oh, for goodness sakes. All right. <laughs> Turns out it was this 111 kilometer overnight race what? called the Hawkesbury Classic. And, uh, um, this is in it was long in college. It was it was probably eighty four, I think, somewhere around there, eighty four or eighty five. Yeah. And uh, so we did the race uh, as a team. So with the three of us, three boats, three single kayaks, and we came. I think we came second or third. And at that point, I'm thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. And I'm pretty good at it. Horrible sufferfest. Yeah. Just miserable. Sitting on your ass for twelve hours. Good God. And then, so the next year, it. next year we got a better boat. Mm-hmm. We got, all got better boats, and then we won. Um, and then the year after that, I was like, oh, this is great. Um, figured out how to deal with the butt problems. And, and now the times are getting pretty good. So I got some friends of mine, uh, one of whom was an Olympian, just got back from, would have been 88, so would have uh, 88. He just got back from the Winter Olympics. He was a Nordic skier. So he and his brother Rod joined uh, with the team with myself. And we then uh, uh, broke, no, we didn't break the record. We crushed the record. Oh, no. It actually stood for, for almost 30 years. It, wow. uh, yeah, it just got broken. But they what changed the starts. This? What school were you in at this time? University of Sydney. Okay. What were you studying? Mechanical engineering. Okay. I actually started in architecture, but my brother was an architect, so then I switched to um, aeronautical engineering. I'm just thinking about the amount of discipline to compete at that level when you're in college and there's a lot of, you know, parties to go to and other things. <laughs> you were, I you partied know, with the canoe club. I see. Yeah. So there was a social life there and Tom. There was, there was a social life. It was a good social life because we did all sorts of activities with the canoe club. Mm-hmm. And it was a good canoe club. We had you know, four-time world champions in kayak. We had all sorts of good paddlers. Um, and so the, the, the competition level was very high. And we competed in all sorts of stuff, uh, slalom, sprint, marathon, canoe polo, which is actually quite big, and not just competed, but uh, I think won, won worlds at canoe polo. Uh, we had world champions in, in kayaking, in sprint. We didn't have any in slalom, but we weren't very good in slalom. Um, and I picked up some, picked up Australian University's champion mm-hmm. in uh, C2, that's two-person canoe downriver, so it's as fast as you can go downriver. Um, and we organized championships and stuff. And on the way, I got involved in governance and sport, which is actually where I first got exposed to this stuff, on the University of Sydney Sports Management Committee, which is basically the um, the, the sports governance organization at the University of Sydney at the time. As a student body? Or? Student body. Okay. Yeah, it's run by the students. All right. We paid. It was interesting. Back in the day, we paid one of the few things that was mandatory fee was this 50 I think it was $53 a year we had to pay a sports management fee to the University of Sydney other than they basically got paid to go to school because it was called the tertiary education assistance allowance or TEAS mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like these days but <clears throat> it was a good system you got to school because you were smart not because you had money right and did you graduate from there I did and what was your degree uh, mechanical engineering okay with a major in the US context the major in basically biomechanical at this point did you determine that you were more interested in sport or more interested in pursuing your career uh i didn't really know you know a typical graduate mm-hmm. i really like biomedical engineering um and i love sport i sailed too i spent a lot of time sailing i started sailing at eight mm-hmm. um the people at <laughs> our neighbors who had little sailboats were the importers for windsurfer nice Back when they were 
That's good teak. friends to have. Yeah, <laughs> teak. So basically, they, they were sailors. Mm-hmm. And so I learned to sail at a young age, basically, I think seven. I started racing little dinghies at eight. I just don't even know how you have so much time for all of this stuff. It's phenomenal that you're cramming all of this into the life of one individual. <laughs> well, when, I, when you're at school, there's actually a lot of free time. But I never had free time. I made no free time, meaning I would fill up the day. You know, most kids, I don't know what kids do these days, but I would. I don't think they're doing it this way, Dan. I really. <laughs> well, I would train, <laughs> like and I would train ethic. early. Yeah, I would train ethic. early. Yeah. Well, I think part of it, I'm, I'm convinced part of it is being adopted, is there's this, you don't even know it at the time, but there's this drive to achieve. I don't know why. You see, you see constantly, like okay. Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. Bill Gates. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Um, but at university, I guess I was fairly unusual because I'd get up at five or six in the morning and train for a few hours. Then I'd go to school, and the school hours were really long. I was trying to do a four-year degree in four years, which is quite hard. Most people took, took five or six. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing about 40 hours face-to-face class time, which is not really feasible because you need about two hours out Study. of school for every hour you have in school. Yeah. So I'd be up, I'd be up for dawn and I'd train then I'd go to school I'd catch the train I'd sleep on the train go to class uh, probably swim at lunch at the pool <laughs> with Dawn Fraser who was the coach there and she was an Olympian multiple, multiple Olympian gold medalist Australia's full of rock stars very very well known for um, having a policy of having sex before races oh I see yeah she's well known for it indeed <clears throat> okay yeah. well that's a and meddling like she had multiple medals in the same events strategy. in multiple years <laughs> <laughs> that was Dawn Fraser. So I'd swim at lunch and then uh, do afternoon classes. In fact, the workload was so high that this guy, Jay, uh, Graham, who tempted me into kayaking. My buddy from kindergarten. My buddy from kindergarten. We would, we would, we couldn't physically get to the classes because you would end up with overlapping classes, which is why it's very difficult to do uh, four year degrees in four years. So we would, we would attend each other's classes if they clashed and then swap notes and then you know, buckle down and then we'd sit down and we'd go through the classes. We'd teach each other. Effectively. What I love is this is very <clears throat> strategy-oriented and team-oriented right out of the gate. Like you just understood so. that that's how you were going to succeed, mm-hmm. and so were your teammates, whether it be him or otherwise. Always better together. Yeah. Work great. Mm-hmm. And we're friends to this day. Work surprise, smart, not, surprisingly. not hard. And both. And both. Work, yeah, work right. hard and work mm-hmm. smart. Uh, so that was college. I actually took, ultimately, really, it was really six years because typical Australian took a year out after school, went sailing around the South Pacific, up the Great Barrier Reef. After graduation? After high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, after high school, before university. And in Australia, you don't graduate from high school. You basically, the most stressful thing you do in your entire life as an Australian is your high school uh, finals, because that sets you up for what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So basically... That determines your college. That determines it dictates your co- where you go. Dictates where you go. What university you get to, what degree you can get into. So that's a big thing. So then... You know, after that, it's pretty stressful. So a lot of people take a year off. So I went Sounds sailing reasonable. for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, then did two years of college and took another year off. Then I traveled through Asia and Africa and near a bunch of China. I wanted to look at my roots a little bit. When you graduated, why did you determine, or maybe there was something else before this, to come to America? Uh, so when I graduated college, I, I interned at a biomedical engineering company, um, after third year and then in fo- after fourth year so after third year in college i was working at this company it was called telectronics so it was like Ms. medtronics basically they were about the same size at the time it was in it was bought by siemens ultimately but um so i worked at this company telectronics 
And they only accepted medal winners from the universities, and I wasn't even close. Like, I was okay. I could get through. <laughs> I was definitely not – I was not your 4.0 you student. You mean scholastic medal Scholastic. Medal That's winners, right. like not the athletic. top in the class. Yeah. They would take the top in the university graduate classes from all the top disciplines. So they had uh, medical students, uh, engineers. They had the people they needed for the company, and that was not me. So what I did is I walked into the company, which was fairly local to where I lived, and I just I sat myself down and said, look, uh, I'm going to work here whether you like it or not, and I'm happy to push a broom. I'll clean the lab. And they said, the all right, pitch. fine, that's fine. Yeah, they said, that's fine. You can short come and clean test tubes. So I did. Excellent. And then so I did that for three months after the end of my third year at college. And uh, You got really good at cleaning out those test tubes. I got so good at cleaning test tubes, they offered me all the jobs of the graduates the next the, after graduation. Mm-hmm. So then I picked, I got to pick my job, which was research and development. So I went to R&D in this biomedical engineering company. Nice. It was heart pacemakers and cardio, uh, implantable medical devices, basically. Was so this in Sydney then? In Sydney. Okay. A couple of years later, they said, oh, we're going to move shop to, um, they didn't say they were moving shop. They said, we're going to open up uh, production lines in the United States. Mm. They had purchased General Electric's pacing division, Quarters Corporation's lead division. They, they were buying up companies. And so I put my hand up and said, I'll, I'll go. And they said, great, three-year assignment, off you go. So I did. And that was Colorado? Uh, well, the head office in Colorado okay. and the factories in Miami. So you went from Miami, Colorado, back and forth? Yes. Okay. So I ended up working a lot in Miami. One of the attractions of going to Colorado was Boulder because a lot oh, of yeah. a lot of people As I knew, a lot of, yeah, a lot of athletes in Boulder and a lot of people I, know, I knew had gone to live between Boulder and San Diego. Okay. There are a lot of triathletes. Mm-hmm. So that was a big attraction for me. And I, uh, I had designs on uh, success in athletics. I had designs on that from a very, very young age. I used to read the Guinness Book of Records and, you know, looked at goldfish swallowing and juggling <laughs> eggs or whatever it was. And, what can I be good yeah, at? Yeah, what can I be good at? There had to be something. Sure, of course. <laughs> if it's odd enough and obscure enough, you can find something. Right. So I had that, I had that in my mind from a very, very young age, probably uh, yeah, before I was 10 for sure, maybe six or eight. So I've been thinking about it for a long time. Mm. I never made it. I was on the Australian canoe team and um, couldn't, I mean, we went to Wilds and a few things and did well, but that's not, that's not solo. That's the big difference. And, but I like team stuff. I was always quite adept at, at team stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, tried in sailing, got a medal at World Cup. Um, and then row gaining, which is uh, long distance orienteering or time limited orienteering, did quite well that as well. This is all making so much sense why you eventually <clears throat> became an adventure athlete. All of these parts and pieces and yeah. sat in your background. Yeah, no, no good at any one thing. Just averagely good, but really collectively good at it all. Mm-hmm. So put it all well, together that's what in aggregate. You good, right? It's like you have to have all the skills. It's a well rounded performance that's required. And then, of course, picking the right teammates is also <laughs> helpful. That is very useful. <laughs> Communication skills are good. That's where the yeah. The education part comes in. I think what we learn at school is we learn how to learn, learn how to be inquisitive, mm. and uh, that's a really good setup for later life. I think in all sorts of ways. Um, at any rate, I, oh, we we're talking about the Olympic thing. Um, so I was thinking about it: uh, sailing, Olympic sport, didn't make it. Cycling, Olympic sport, didn't make it. Triathlon was not Olympic sport, but was still there were good athletes in Australia at the time, and. There's, there's always good athletes around. There's, there's a lot of good athletes. Yeah. I didn't have the focus or the, the skill sets or the athletic ability to compete as an individual athlete at running or cycling or swimming 
or any of that stuff. I think I probably could have done it in sailing if I'd really put my mind to it. But I, like I said, I ping. Yeah. I'd be off doing something else or so doing them all at once. George. I'd be sail, yeah, I'd be sailing in the morning and I'd be or sailing in the afternoon. I'd be riding my bike in the morning and paddling in the afternoon. I mean, it was just you know. I'd well, do it, it all. sounds really more like you were in pursuit of joy or what was going to bring you pleasure that day in, in addition to being an athlete right so your training regiment was so much more well-rounded than the average person that sounds like a good thing that was probably the problem too is that i didn't really have a training <laughs> i didn't have a training regiment oh, my training well, regiment was coaches just, wouldn't necessarily agree with oh no definitely not but uh, but what i would do is i would spend i mean i could easily spend 12 hours in a weekend doing a constant output of run bike kayak i mean to the point where when i got into kayaking i really got into it mm. and so i would paddle my kayak to work it was a 10k paddle to work and i could i could run down to the waterfront i could put my olympic kayak in and i paddle to work 10k i had a parking spot so i put my kayak in my car parking spot nice and then uh, and then in the afternoon <laughs> i'd paddle home again and quite often i'd go further i'd either you know then i'd maybe paddle up the river another 10k After and so yeah so i'd make it a 40k day right and I wouldn't, it would be quite common for me to do that kind of behavior. And on days when I was sick of kayaking, then I'd ride my bike or run. And then just out of curiosity, you have coworkers, right? What are these people thinking? Like, what's the story with Ian? He's a little nuts. Yeah, uh, yeah sort of. And we were all nuts were in some way. were they like, hey, I got to get a piece of this. This looks pretty good. Was, was there that? No, I, no, people were into their own things. They, mm -hmm. they were, Aussies are kind of weird anyway. So, you know, we're crazy. Mm-hmm. For the most part, um, that, that was normal crazy behavior, I guess. So what was your next career transition? Where did you go professionally after that? So professionally, uh, the company I was working for uh, had bought uh, a company called Cordis Corporation or had bought their lead divisions, their lead di leads division, leads, electronic leads, they're implantable leads, electronic. You plug them into a pacemaker and then basically attach it to your heart. They bought the company that made those and inherited all of the, the IP and the technology and the products. And so I ended up, I ended up managing uh, that as the, uh, the project engineer. And um, the company, unfortunately, the, one of the products, it was called a, an atrial J lead. So it was a lead that had this J-shaped hook on it and you fed it, you, you strained it out by pushing a stent, which is a, a fairly stiff piece of metal down the middle. And these are tiny little things. And then you could feed it into the through your subclavian artery, which is in your neck basically, or your shoulder, and then into your heart. And then you pull this stent out, this rigid piece, and the hook, or the J would fling, will go back to shape. So it would hook into the atrium. Wild. Great idea. Yeah. Except some genius <laughs> at quarters years ago decided that the spring mechanism to make the hook form it, reform a shape would be just a, a little leaf spring. So a little bent piece of wire basically really bad idea and the reason it's a bad idea is that your heart beats about once every second right or so something like that hopefully <clears throat> hopefully <laughs> well that's three million beats a year right a that's a lot of beats this thing's gonna wear out pretty things quickly. the thing the thing then then they did they broke Ugh. then these little springs Internal. in yeah Ugh. inside your heart yeah these little springs will break and then you've got a basically a knife great a very very sharp stiff piece of metal and they would puncture the heart from the inside and cause cardiac tamponade, which is basically you just put a hole in your heart and you're not going to last very long because now you're bleeding out from your own heart. Uh, and that obviously was not good. 
So I ended up managing that. Not a that was a fairly stressful time. <laughs> I should imagine. Yeah. Had had to do a redesign, so redesign the, the. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was they were implanted in a in a hundred thousand people. Wow. Maybe not a hundred thousand. Maybe sixty thousand. It was a lot of people. And so the morning call, so working with the FDA and managing this, I had a pretty big team, probably 100 people in total managing this stuff. And the morning, the Monday morning meetings were the kind of the fatality ones. It's like, oh, crap. And then, because we inherited this, but it doesn't relieve you from the necessity and, and responsibility of managing the problem and thinking that there's now there's 59,900 people out there with them and what's going to happen to them? The problem was extracting the leads was a traumatic uh, surgery. It's open heart surgery, basically, at the time. You can't just pull them out because they get right. encapsulated in tissue. And you can't necessarily put out a recall to every single one of those humans. Hey, we can't recall them. them. I mean, there's nothing you could do. Mm. So that ended up sinking the company. So they inherited this bad product, and they managing 60,000 people out there who, you know, the, the fortunate, it's never fortunate. Most people would not live long enough because they were fairly old. Um, the demographic of the were for it to go wrong back in those days. So it was well, most people would die of natural causes, and it would never affect them. But that's not everyone, and of course that was uh, that was something that we would pull, <laughs> not just all nighters or weekers trying to figure that one out. Mm-hmm. So that was that the company then got uh, the IP really got bought by Siemens. Actually, Sunju Medical was the company that ended up buying it, but it got got absorbed by Siemens, the giant German company, and then Telectronics was no more. Now, during that whole episode, I, I uh, retired myself from, I resigned gracefully from the company and then went back as a, as a contractor and a consultant. Okay. That was the transition to being an athlete. You stayed in Denver? <clears throat> uh, yeah, so I was living in, yeah, I was living in Southeast Denver at the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that allowed me the freedom. So I doubled my pay, halved my work hours, and then I could train. Excellent. Now, while I was working there, so I worked there from 91 through almost 98 through the end of 97. So during that period, I lived in downtown Denver, and then uh, the company was near Parker, so it was about a 20-mile commute, and I would either run or ride. Mm-hmm. So I'd run or ride to work and then back again. So I was doing 40-mile training days. And then at lunch, I would, I would usually cycle with the cycling team uh, around Cherry Creek State Park, and then at night I would usually train in the pool, um, and or an alternate days kayak. So I was having four to six hour training days while I was working. What sport were you gunning towards? What was your goal here? Well, at that point, uh, I was still looking at kayaking. Actually, okay. I was working on a project. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was at the time, I was actually working on a project to set the Guinness Book of World Records for endurance kayaking. And it had been around for a really long time. It was set, the previous one had been set in 1986 on the Vistula River in Poland, and it was it was generally thought to be an unassailable record. It was uh, 80, 100 and, 186 miles, which oh, is a pretty Lord. hefty distance. In a kayak? In a kayak, yeah. Woo. So I'm looking at going, oh, I, can, I can beat that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, sounds, my, I had my sight I mean, set on 200. in Ian's world. And my set set in 200 because people people thought I was out of my mind. This is not, you can't, no one can battle 200 miles, that's stupid. So, of course, I'm thinking, hell, I'm going to do that. That sounds great. Watch me. Mm -hmm. So I did. Um, So in 97, I I did exactly that. I went to the Colorado River. Bad choice, as it turns out. Good enough, but a bad choice. And I paddled uh, an Olympic-class downriver kayak, which is a fairly unstable, quite quick boat, but good for big water. So you can paddle. A proficient paddler can 
paddle in like grade five rapids, stuff that rafts flip in. And so I cover a lot of distance. Cover a lot of distance, yeah. So I did that. I paddled from basically just below Lake Granby at Pump House, where the commercial rafts put in, and paddled basically the Moab. How many miles was that? Uh, Two hundred and three. Lord have mercy. Yeah, I think Big Bend. I think was where we took out, but <clears throat> it was uh, it was not good because it was dangerous. <laughs> yeah. One big rapids, For sure. really big rapids. My and safety kayakers couldn't keep up. Okay. Yeah, well, they get in and get out and get in, but I'd drop them right. or they'd flip and they'd get you know they'd have problems. They'd have to catch you. What happened though was the, it was a full moon and, but it was cloudy, so it was dark, and going through below Palisade through the Grand Valley, if, I don't know if anyone knows this area. It's kind of where the, it's all the peach trees and the grapes and stuff kicking, and it sort of opens up. The river got really high and was quite close to the bottoms of the bridges. Good fast flow, but at night when you can't see, all you hear is this huge roar oh, and you know there's a bridge coming and I, eventually I just freaked out and I was like, I can't do this, this is, I'm going to so die. Scary. <laughs> yeah. It was scary as shit. And then, uh, so I pulled out and I lost a ton of time and distance because the clock's going, you Waiting can't, for the can't sun stop to the clock. Up, basically. basically, yeah. So mm -hmm. at that point I went, oh crap. So I probably lost four hours of paddling mm -hmm. um, and just went around the big bridges and then put in again, uh, I can't remember exactly where it was, just below Grand Junction, like through the area basically. And so then you, broke the, you broke the record. Yeah, by a few miles, Big so two, okay. two o three, and I'm thinking at that point, I'm thinking, ah, shit, that's not good enough. I got to do better than that. <clears throat> so I kept working enough. on the project. You were not satisfied with that. Not even close. Okay. Yeah, not even close. So mm -hmm. at that point, I'm thinking, got to get a better river that's not as dangerous, and I got to change my boat up. So I ended up. Uh, I spent a lot of years scouting this whole. Thing. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been thinking about it since about 1988. You're not obsessive. No, I, no, I do have – I'm patient. I see. I would say I'm patient. Okay. So I worked at it. And then I went, ended up on the Teslin River in, uh, in in the Yukon Territory, Canada. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I was Colder actually wanted to – Cold but, yeah. Cold, but uh, it, better. Mm -hmm. Open, less rapids. Bad year. I went up in 98, went up the next year, mm -hmm. and had the Outdoor Life Network Canada TV crew with me. I wanted to get it fully documented and uh, it didn't do well because there was a couple there was forest fires there was a drought the river we hit bottom on the river a lot we just kept bottoming out oh, the shit. support boat couldn't get through so that was that we ended that one um, I think I actually broke the record but I didn't claim it and then went up again in 2000 ish maybe 2002 or three I can't remember exactly got on the Yukon okay had the same problem Wrong, slightly wrong time of year. For, for some reason, I kept thinking I had to be there on some solstice. Was was not the right time. Well, you were looking for nightlight. I was looking for for daylight. Oh, longer daylight. Longer daylight, mm -hmm. not best flow. Or, and the river was again was too low. Mm -hmm. So I did break the record again. I think it was two eighteen at that point. Um, kept up in the ante. Kept up bit. the up in the ante, but I kept thinking, ah, this is not right. It's a it's a patience game. So I had to figure out right time of year, right flow. And there's random things. Did the wind come up? Is there a forest fire? Is there all this stuff goes on? And eventually in 2004, right before my 40th birthday, got a pretty good year. And at that point, I was inviting people. I was saying, hey, you should come do this. It'll be a better record. So I got a few people to come. There was a British guy and a, uh, I think a Molokai winner. We had, you know, had a few good paddlers. And then we made it a race. Um, and it was, it was good enough. It wasn't great, but it was good enough. Mm -hmm. There were some problems, you know, usually, it's always going to happen. It's like, it's like life, life happens. Yeah. Another mistake. 
we had three good paddlers with one support boat. Bad idea. Yeah, I how didn't, can you pa- you're going to get spread out. Well, you? it didn't really anticipate. I thought we'd like, kind of go together and there'd be a real race. Turns out that didn't really happen. I got so far ahead. I mean, I think at one point I got 40 miles ahead one of the guys. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so, no, and, so the support boat is trying do. to... It isn't both. Yeah, and the Yukon is this braided Massive. river. It's yeah. got islands that can be a mile, two miles long and like six different ways to go. And, of course, I, the support boat, boat lost me. Mm-hmm. And then I'm paddling. I went for like four or it might have been six hours with no support. And, and I was like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> Hot, dehydrated, no food, no water, no support. But I'm thinking, oh, it's over again. I've got to try to come back next year. <laughs> well, I didn't come back next year because eventually I got back to the boat and recovered a bit and then paddled to the finish and did 262. Okay. If you were not satisfied with that, we have a problem. Please tell me that was a win. Uh, it was good enough. Okay. So cool. At that, at that point, I, I, I'm done. And then I got all sorts of calls from people who want to do it. So Andy, um, uh, U.S. canoe team, 11-time U.S. champion in Downriver, then did it uh, a few years later. Uh, 2013, I think. I gave him all the information. I said, hey, use this river. Here's the, here's the support boat guy. Start here. Go to there. I gave him all the information. Now, I, mean, I want people to break records. I think that's what they're for. Mm-hmm. And then another guy claims he did it, but some of us are pretty skeptical. <laughs> Nobody quite witnessed that, huh? No, yeah, so yeah. But yeah, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. Yep. Andy and I, here's the thing. You know the good paddlers. You know who they are. Sure. They're the guys on oh, the US team and they're going yeah. to the worlds and they're winning all this. And then someone pops up without that stuff and just does it and you're going, but we've never seen them. Do they do this in isolation? How do you get good when you don't compete for 30 years against yeah. your peers? I don't know how you do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not impossible, right? But. Unlikely. Slightly mysterious. Slightly mysterious. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just a little skeptical, but you know what? If it's good, it's good. Great, fantastic. Right. So that that's that 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 was that business. Two thousand and four. When is that one? When was your leap into adventure racing? That started you're still pretty young. I mean, at least the pictures I've seen. <clears throat> I was quite young. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really started with my dad, who was a, effectively he was out in the field a lot, so he would drag us along at a very very young age. Uh, three, four years old, caving and climbing and out in the wilderness and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the, my exposure and immersion in the outdoors was uh, from a young, it was, it, was in, it was innate at that point, um, just being comfortable mm-hmm. with the map of compass and running around in the wilderness and where people get freaked out and they might get eaten by snakes or something and nah, it's fine. Um, that's when it started. But the, the formal adventure stuff, really came from my Olympic buddies who I was kind of been kayaking with. Okay. And they were doing adventure racing in Australia back in the uh, early 80s. That's really where the sport originated, correct? Well, the early roots actually from the United States. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was a race up around Rainier back in um, 19, early 1900s. It was a true adventure race. Wow. It was from the ocean. That's cool. You have bicycles and canoes, and then you end up climbing, summiting. Oh, man, we have to find some pictures of that. I'm sure they're around That's somewhere. Awesome. It's fairly well documented. Okay. Went for a couple of years. The second year, though, the organizer's cousin or brother or something fell down in a crevasse, and it was too dangerous. And there's no roads in those days, right? It was just the only way to get up was a river. Mm-hmm. So they paddle, paddle their canoes up the river and <laughs> climb up the mountain. and I mean, <laughs> real adventure. Crazy. True adventure. That was, yeah, that was a long time. Then the Kiwis were do- Kiwis and Aussies were doing it in various forms from the seventies. When was your first race adventure? 
84, I was a support crew. Okay. Uh, my my buddies, the Hislops, Dave and Rod and Dave Hislop, they were racing. Okay. And no, that race, the race that we were doing there was called Wild Trek back in the day, and it was Nordic skiing, um, then orienteering. Okay. Uh, mountain biking, sort of, but those days they didn't really have mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. Some people had them. We had cross bikes, cycle mm-hmm. cross bikes. Uh, then wild water kayaking. It was a two-day race. Okay. It was, it was fast. What Pretty about brutal. that bit you? Well, the most uh, retrospective enjoyment, it's one of those things. I, I watched these guys doing it as a support guy, and I was like, you're out of your minds. There's no way I'm doing that. It's just miserable. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. What on earth possesses you? Typical crew. To, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, pretty quickly, uh, I got. they said, oh, you should do it. It's really fun. So... I did it with a friend of mine, Keith Tuffley, and because it was it was two people, it was too dangerous to do it solo. Really, yeah. I mean, if you ate it, you would probably die. So they made you do it as a pair, so you, both of you would die or something. I don't know. Right. <laughs> so we, I did it with my friend Keith, and uh, the first year we did it, got to the finish, and it was brutal, man. It was just suffering. At that point, that was the most suffering I had ever done in any form, like mm-hmm. mental, physical, emotional, just, just soul just destroying. Just a lot with somebody from your background. Yeah. Well, I was early 20s and you kind of know, I was doing triathlons and stuff and long distance kayaking, but this was hard, mm-hmm. brutal. And consequently, I absolutely loved it. Yep. Um, got to the finish line. The, the most accurate thing is, this is common, I think, is you get to the finish line, they hand you a beer and you go, that sucked, I'm never doing that again. You drink your beer and you go, that was great, I'm going to do that next year. Of course, exactly. <laughs> Sign me up. Now. Sign me up. I, yeah, I'm in. And then, of course, the mentality like you have, which is, I think I could do better. I could do this differently. You know, I learned a lot. And being able to take that information and progress. Yeah, so that was, so I did a few of those through uh, until I came to the U.S. and then didn't exist in the U.S., so... Um, I actually would go back to Australia and compete okay. every now and again, mm-hmm. which was fun. Um, back to see the family. Back to see the family, you know? jump in races in a team with some people, and we'd do all sorts of fun stuff. In 95, well, it was really uh, it was really 1989, the Ray Guaz was on ABC Sports in the United States, and that was the first exposure in the U.S. And then Mark Burnett got a bee in his bonnet about wanting to compete and so he put together a team, and he figured Navy SEALs would be, or the U.S. Special Forces would be the right people. So he put teams together, and he competed uh, in a few raids. I think he finished on maybe Madagascar. So it would have been about 91 or 2, somewhere around there. Okay. And that kind of got, the, that kind of got the, uh, the conscience going in the United States. And, and then he got a license from Girard Fuzzi from Reguaz to run it as under the name Eco Challenge in the United States, the contiguous states. What year was that? 95. Okay. So he put it on in, in 95. And then I saw that and went, oh, UP, mm-hmm. here's, here's something I know. I uh, got some of my old body, my buddies who had been winning stuff uh, outside the US, which was the only place it was, including the raid. Yeah. So basically the winners. And we put together a team. Then we showed up in Utah. Uh, a boy was intimidating because we we're a bunch of like these ruffians with book bags, right, <laughs> and running shoes. And we see these like buff soldier types with all their backpacks and their bells and their whistles Military and their uniforms and, their, and they all look all strong and stuff. And we we're like, oh, God, we're going to be just smashed in this race. We've got no chance. Well, of course, looks can be deceiving. <laughs> totally. So the ragtag bunch of 
Aussies and Kiwis and an Irishman and whatnot, we uh, we we did well. We finished a day ahead of the next team. Wow. Yeah. That's actually phenomenal. Never yeah. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we did okay, and at that point we're going, oh, they're not as good as they look. Let's do some more of this. So we went to the X Games a few weeks later. Mm-hmm. Had two teams in the X Games. Uh, kind of split the team, and this this became the rule. Actually, we would all inevitably have we formalised it eventually, but we inevitably have multiple teams in any given race, and we'd usually place first or second, or first or second or third or something like that. Um, so that set the stage, and then that, so we did X Games for three years, and uh, we always won. Had a, we always had a, we always came, basically came first and second. How many years were you actually racing competitively in the adventure space? Uh, from the early from the earliest days, I guess it would have been uh, eighty five until two thousand and seven. Wow, that's a solid career right there. Yeah, <laughs> but full time it was only thirteen years, I think. That's still a lot. Yeah, it was a lot longer than I expected. Mm-hmm. So when I started, when I when I left my job at Telectronics, when I resigned and went back as a contractor, that lasted a few years, and then I really did feel that I could go. Well, the Eco Challenge did it. It came along. One came television, one came money, sponsorship, mm-hmm. advertising, and went, oh, all right, now's the time. So that's when I went, then I retired, then I completely quit the biomedical space and went for being a full-time athlete, and uh, it worked. But at that point, so now we're in 96, uh, no, that was 98. So in 98, when I was actually full-time, I figured I'd have a three-year transition period, a three-year life. It made sense that this is a hard sport. It's long. It's difficult. There's the athletes winning are world champions in some other sports. They're mm-hmm. mountain bike world champions and kayak world and out running champions. I mean, there's world champions all over the place. It was full of world champions. And this is a tough sport and it's yeah. competitive. And there's a lot of money. I mean, we, a good year, there'd be a million dollars in prize money. So we were, wow. you know, real people were chasing real money. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and went, oh, crap. I've got about three years. I better have an exit strategy. So my exit strategy was I'll go to the event production side and the television production side. Which you eventually did. Which I did in the first, in those three years. That's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. But then I lasted another 10 years. So, yeah. <laughs> so I got a bonus. But then you were doing both. So you started pursuing endurance sports as a professional career choice. So that's right. So as a sports professional, I was racing um, and producing simultaneously for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I was really just contracting to events, uh, a lot of work for IMG, mm-hmm. actually through our first sports agent, uh, Murphy Reinschreiber out of San Diego, who was representing people like Paul and Newby Fraser and Greg Welch and Kaylee Jones and the triathlon crowd. And he saw what was happening in Adventure and went, oh, I don't want some of that. So we ended up with Murphy. And Murphy was also an event producer working for the big guys. So uh, he would he would have all sorts of us from the athletic side work on events because we knew racing. Exactly. So we would show up to places that would China and Malaysia and whatever for these events and you'd it'd be the staff would be Heather Fuhr and Rock Fry and Paul and Newby Fraser and That's we'd be so the staff. Fun. Yeah. So we'd be there. We were his athletes and then we were also his staff. Wow. And I stuck with it because I liked it. I really liked uh, producing stuff. What did you like about it? Great question. Um I like that uh, sport encourages people to move. Right. I mean, that's the bottom line. It really mm-hmm. comes down to you're going to do something and you're going to be passionate about it, make it useful, or make it at least something that's productive or healthy. Because a lot of stuff people get into is not so healthy and not so productive. Right, for hobbies. For hobbies. Stuff. And mm-hmm. sport, and that stuck with me, is that I've always liked the idea that people innately want to move and they it's, it's what they do. Kids at the beach don't run screaming from the beach in the opposite direction. 
they keep their shoes off and they run across the beach and splash in water. That's what kids do. Adults do the same thing. They may not admit it, but they actually do the same thing. Yes. So that's innate to humans. We want to play. Mm-hmm. People do not want to work. They want to play. Like going to a gym and lifting metal things and pieces of metal, that's work. That's a workout <laughs> or a work in. Or a work in. A work yeah. in. That's, that's not, nice. that's yeah. not playing, right. which is why obstacle sports today, that's playing. Which it's, is your new genre, not you new, or you've been in obstacle sports for a while. You transitioned from adventure to obstacle. Yeah, sort of, well, by all sorts of convoluted means, but it did end up being uh, back in back in sport. Never really left it because another thing that happened while I was producing stuff and racing was that we were sponsored by originally Reebok and then Salomon okay. for many years and then Nike, and actually for Golight for one year. Nice. Um, and so I, the design center for Salomon was in Boulder. And since I lived in Boulder, literally one block from the design center, I would walk on in and Bob Africa was one of the chief designers oh, there. And wow. I got to know the, the staff really well and I was an athlete. So it made sense for me to work with them to, to help with the shoes. So that's exactly what I did. So I worked with these designers and the, the whole crew out of the Boulder design center. And we made stuff. It was the first, they were the first lightweight kind of running adventure shoes. I think a year actually came out with the very, very early ones in the, in the 80s. But then the, first, the stuff that you see today on people's feet, that's what we were designing. It hasn't changed much. Right. So that makes sense because I knew you used to be involved, maybe you still are to some extent, with Newton. Well, uh, yeah, somewhat. I mean, peripherally, yes. The, the Salomon thing is interesting. I'm just going to go back to. The first shoe that we produced, which was which was we called it an adventure shoe, it was the trade. It was the Raid Wind was was the name of it. Okay. If you look at the Raid Wind, and you look at any Salomon uh, Trail shoe today, it's the same. It just hasn't changed that much. I think Bob Bob was really the chief designer with some other designers. He really nailed it. He 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 made a thing that was light. It was basically an abuse abuse proof running shoe. He did he did it right. We did the all terrain, yeah, pretty much. We did the same at Nike. We we replicated. I think we did an even better job at Nike. We took our learnings from um, working in with Salomon, and then we did the same thing at Nike. Is that we they were very good with. You want something good? Well, you better you better help out because you're the guys. You're going to use it. Right. They were really good at doing that. So and they were fast. So we would say we would get shoe designs and work with the designers and the. And we'd get very fast iterations of products. So we end up with a thing called the Nike or Nike ACG Orizaba, which is really That's a copy. Mouthful. Yeah, Orizaba. I don't know <laughs> what it means. It was a copy of the Raven, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, and then that that shoe, uh, it was absolutely dominant in the market while we were racing. It was a very good shoe. Very, very, cool. very good one. Yeah. Fun to be on the forefront of that technology. Yeah. And to be an athlete in the space and seeing all the evolution. I mean, it's like <clears throat> bizarre almost how far everything's come, right? What you've seen in your lifetime as an athlete, especially starting that, that, that young in products and in methodologies and everything. Well, and it was a lot of products because we worked with the, the guys at Catula who make the, the window running stuff, mm-hmm. window running spikes. They started with um, a lightweight crampon and we helped, we worked with them with you know, basically feedback, like you should do this and you should do that, which they were quite good at listening to. And Catula quite quickly started dominating lightweight mountaineering. So Catula, like the world record for climbing Everest is on Catula stuff. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And then same with uh, Golight. You know, we worked on their packs and their bags and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. uh, when they were around. Now my trail. But um, so uh, 
Dimitri Kupinis and Kim, his wife, were running it, and they were in Boulder, quite convenient. So we were their first team and helped them with their designs. You know, being in Boulder, simple, just walk into, walk into the office and help out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, that whole paradigm shift from big, heavy, full-shank hiking boots and heavy packs to ultralight, you know, fast-packing stuff, that was all pushed through, pushed by adventure racing. Yeah, and this is like in the 90s, like late 90s? Mid, mid to mid late. 90s. Okay. Yeah, mid to late. So that led ultimately, sort of coincidentally, led to Newton running, I guess, because I was uh, uh, at the Boulder Boulder Creek Festival before Memorial Day. So the more Memorial Day weekend in 2007, they had just launched, and um, Danny Abshire must have recognized me from TV. He was one of the co founders, and Danny like, pulled me into there their space, they were on the mall, on the Pearl Street Mall, in the uh, the old, um, one of the store, it had been a Prana store or something, I can't remember it was, but it was one of the storefronts and they just rendered the empty space and they, they would bring their product out and now I'm skeptical and I'm a Nike guy, I was <laughs> covered in my Nike gear and he says, you try these, I said, sure. So I put them on, ran bold, bold the next day and uh, absolutely loved the shoes. thought they were just magic, couldn't figure out what was going on, but I re- realized they were good. Yeah. And then uh, got to know Danny and uh, Jerry Lee, the the financier and other co-founder, and realized that they really were, there was like six people in the company. And I'm coming from a company with 60,000 employees. And I'm going, holy crap, how do you do that? And I didn't think they really knew how they did it. Yeah, but nimble. But nimble. And creative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bob Taylor was the guy in, in Asia who was doing it all with his partner, a uh, guy called H.G. Sir. And they, they were making it. Basically, four of them were really doing the whole thing. And and I went, hey, like I, got, I got some skills. You should employ me. Yeah. So they did. Oh, excellent. <laughs> but not an employee, I was a contractor. Okay. So I headed up product development. Did that for quite a few years. Love it. Five so years. Like the jack of all trades. Yeah. And I, well, at the time I was producing, I'd started a thing called 24 Hours of Triathlon. Okay. Still going. Is it? Yeah, still going. It's out uh, back east somewhere. But what that was, was I was looking at 24 Hours of Moab. Literally 24 hours of Moab going, hey, you could do that in triathlon. So I, I approached the guy who owns the 24 hours of races and said, do you see conflict if I do triathlon? He was like, ah, oh, that's fine. Apparently other people had tried 24 hours of stuff, but he, if you didn't ask him, he didn't like it. So I went, ah, fine, I'll ask. So I did. And he said, great, go for it. So I did. And then ran this thing, 24 hours of triathlon for a few years. So in 2006, uh, lost my shirt, lost about $75,000 the first year, typical event. Marketing yeah, exactly. budget. That was my marketing. Typical Expensive Indians. marketing. Yeah. Next year, uh, broke this even. The year after that, made about made a lot. Um, we are, we got so big so fast that, you know, at that point I had Suzuki and sponsors. Red Bull and, I mean, I had big sponsors and big festivals set up as a whole. We took over the entire Cherry Creek State Park. We were busting out the scenes. We got in trouble because we had people trying to park all over the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, it got giant. And then and then I was over it. Like, ah, did that. did that. So I gave it to a guy. Um, Cole Braun, who had a, f- a, f- a charity, I thought, oh, that's good. Yeah, you can make money on the charity thing. So I gave it to him. And then now I think his son runs it. So that was so probably in its 14th year now. So that's that still, still chugs along. We did eight hours as well. Okay. The, the whole goal, one of the goals was, it was kind of cool actually, because in, a, in an eight-hour race, think about an Ironman. How many people break eight hours in an Ironman? Oh, please. Not many, right? No. So what the the thing was, it was a little slower because there was a lot of tra- it was very short. It was one 
it was one tenth of an Ironman. Every leg was one tenth the distance. Okay. So you did ten. Mm. You did an Ironman. Ten like Ten swims, ten bikes, ten runs. But then you had to do them in order. Swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run. Until night, because you couldn't swim at night. So then you would bank. So you'd try and bank your swims. It was very strategic. People absolutely loved it. We created world championships. We had world records. It was all super cool. You just This was just a crazy idea. You yeah, it's a crazy idea. It turned into reality. Super fun. Became real. Newton, Newton sponsored it. That was actually the pitch. That was the original pitch. Hey, you should sponsor my race. That uh-huh. was what I did. And then I go, you do what? Hey, maybe you should, you should employ me too. Right, exactly. <laughs> so they did. So they sponsored it. Um, and then I ended up heading up private development. And then R&D and then medical and then education and built out a global system of educators across 26 countries. So obstacle racing, at what point, what juncture did you transition? Were you in race production in obstacle racing? Were you actually competing nope. as an athlete? Nope. How did nope. you get into obstacle racing? Uh, <clears throat> well, it was Joe DeSena. So rewind to 2000 and rewind to the 1990s. Um, we had met racing. He was doing adventure. He was doing all sorts of stuff. Okay. Joe DeSena had made a fortune on Wall Street and he was, um, he had a travel company, corporate travel, okay. out of his New York office. Uh, and he loved to race. So at one point, uh, <laughs> it was probably about 2000, maybe even at the, I don't know, it might have been the Borneo Eco Challenge in 2000. He said, hey, I want to put on a race. So, okay, fine, contact me. So we did through a guy called Russ Antonacci, and then we put on the thing called Expedition BVI. It was right around or just after September 11, 2001. Mm. Also right at the edge of a hurricane called Hurricane Olga, <laughs> which was exciting. These might have been some indicators of where this was going to go. Yeah. So... <laughs> The universe so, was speaking. <laughs> yeah. So the outcome was the race was um was fantastic. It was, awesome. it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. We hired fifty foot yachts for all the teams and what? We went and we basically sailed around to each island in the BVI and then we'd let them overnight. They had, we had agreements with resorts like the Bitter and Yacht Club and we'd sail into the Bitter and Yacht Club. And then we had twenty four hour segments. So you had twenty four hours to finish each day. Okay. And so the fast teams could get it done in something reasonable, like 12 or 16 hours. And then rest. And rest. And the tail enders would barely make the cutoff. So they'd, they'd, some teams would wind up with the Bitter and Yacht Club and they'd get a room and they'd be like living in luxury, drinking, drinking Mai Tais and sitting by the pool and living it up. And other teams would struggle and collapse on the beach and sleep for an hour and then start again. So I love it. That's what we, that's what we did. And we went out to these really cool places. And the BVI is a pretty amazing place. So we had this absolutely spectacular race. Um, and uh, in the tail of the hurricane, there's all sorts of stories. There's a whole podcast around those stories. You should set me and Joe down and talk, talk about it. But it's freaking crazy, awesome. crazy shit happened. We had we had one fin. We had the grand finish on the final day at a, a boat called the Willie T, which is a floating bar. Okay. People basically get drunk and naked and jump in the water. And Excellent. So that's what we did. We basically said to finish, you have to. We prefer you get naked, but you got to you got to take a shot from the shot ski. It's a it was a wave ski with four holes in it with four While shot glasses. You're in the water, just floating. Now you had to take a shot, run up to the top of this old pirate ship looking thing, okay. jump into the water naked. Was the idea that was nice. the finish? That was how you finished. <laughs> well, you know, you didn't have to get naked, and you didn't have to drink alcohol, but right. pretty much everyone did. Right. So, so then, and we also did things like one of the finishes was you had to limbo at at Foxy's bar. It's a very famous bar where on the millennium it was Mick Jagger and it was a whole crowd of A-listers are at the bar on New Year's Eve. That's Willie. That's Foxy's bar. Excellent. So our finish was at Foxy's okay. doing the limbo with Foxy out there calling it. 
And so you had to limbo into the bar. This sounds like my kind of adventure. Oh, it was so much fun. We might have to bring this back. Well, and there was another finish we had at a place called, uh, that wasn't finish. It was in the middle of the race. One of the mandatory items of equipment for the race was uh, women's lingerie. Awesome. Yeah. So we had women's lingerie, and they had no idea what this was for because we didn't tell them. Mm -hmm. But what happened was. Was it mandatory gear? Mandatory gear. So during the race, there's this place called uh, the Bomber Shack on Tortola. The Bomber Shack is famous because on a full moon, Bomber, this huge native guy, has like a witch's cauldron, which is absolutely enormous. It's probably three feet across. It literally looks like a witch's cauldron, and it's hallucinogenic mushroom tea. Oh, jeez. And it's free. What is happening? Yeah. So the Bomber Shack is... so, But at the Bomber Shack, which is literally a shack. It's best yeah. now. So you've got this shack. Kind of the over years, decades, has been built out over the water from the road. So it's basically a roadside, like literally a dusty road by the water. And he built this shack, which was just it started off as a tiny, tiny little wooden shack. And over years and decades, it grew to this really big bar. But it was still a kind of lean-to thing. And what would happen is uh, somehow, some way, at one point, women would start taking off their panties and stuff and nailing them to the bar. I see. So at this point in 2001, there was thousands and thousands of pieces of lingerie just plastering this giant lean-to bar over the ocean. And and there's Bomber. So we had Bomber would be the checkpoint guy, right? So he would do he'd do Love the it. checkpoint. Yeah. And um, the laundry was to be nailed to the bar. Okay. Now some some of the athletes wore it. Sure. <laughs> so, well, because they didn't know what to figured, do with it. Yeah. So Seems they, like a reasonable thing. Yeah. So so then there were athletes. Uh, Alina Usher, who's still an active adventure athlete, I think a very good one. I think she's won coast to coast. So Alina was wearing hers. She's nice. on the Finnish team, right? Nice. So and she's not an ugly chick. Uh, so Elena, I was there I was thinking oh this is going to be good yeah. and they're standing there and they couldn't quite understand that like what do you mean we're going to like, you got to get your laundry and you got to like nail it up there and they're going and then she goes ah shit and she was wearing it so she stripped off took it off and up it went I love it yeah love so that was Expedition BVI and that was how I got involved with obstacle racing ultimately okay because Joe and I stayed in contact over the years and he would kept set, he had all these crazy ideas like he started a death race and he had these he had so many different things going on Mm-hmm. It was like he was this really good at throwing mud, like me. We'd just throw mud at the wall to see what would stick. And and one of the things is Spartan Race. So early on, the other one of the other uh, there was really a couple of people that were driving this expedition. BVI Colin McManus was one of them. She ended up living basically in, in the Virgin Islands with the Prime Minister's family. So she was kind of this white girl in the <laughs> in the family, a de facto family member. Mm-hmm. Um, she called me one day and said, hey, you know, we're trying to do this this thing called Spartan Race and we're trying to do this and that. And so I would help them with various projects like we need to get in the military. And I was I was teaching at Air Force bases, so I would go and say, yeah. And so we'd, we'd coordinate through things. And, and over time, the Spartan Race got quite big, uh, as yeah. we know today. And I always stayed kind of on bad. the periphery. Just, you know, mm-hmm. just it was all pro bono stuff. I was just helping out my buddy. Um, and then Joe, with these crazy ideas, at one point in 2013 said... You know, I think we want to. Uh, I think we want to go to the Olympics. Who should do that? Colleen said, "Oh, Ian, Ian can do that." So she called me. I went, "I don't know. That's not that easy." But I'll take a look at it. So I did, and um, pretty. And after about a year, it was evident that taking a brand is not possible. You can't take a brand to the Olympics. It's there is no mechanism for it. There's no structure. There's no. It's not how it's done. 
you have to have an international federation with you know so many years of governance and X number of countries and a huge amount of structural and and systematic stuff that that even qualifies you to be recognised as a sport. And obstacle racing back in those days wasn't even and was an activity. Right. A lot of races, a lot of people doing it, tons, thousands, millions. Amateur um, sport, just, but you know. but an activity, great. Right. And which everything starts as an activity. Frisbee started climbing, everything else starts as an activity. Uh, so the answer, my answer back was, all right, great, fine, but it's not going to happen. Certainly, it's definitely not going to be Spartan race um, or any other race for that matter. Mm-hmm. However, at that point, I was really intrigued because one of the things that the people have been saying and what I've been learning was sports take a really long time to become a sport, take even long to get recognized. And if they get recognized, you might have a chance at getting a medal event at a games if you're really lucky because there are hundreds of recognized sports and thousands of non-recognized sports. And of the hundreds of sports, there's only 28 maybe in Tokyo, uh, 33 sports in the summer games, 33. And this is recent. Until yeah. until Tokyo, there was only ever going to Less. be 28. Yeah. 28 sports, that's it. So your chances are remote at best. And, and knowing this... The irony is, you said... I well, this challenge. I mean, at some point, you stepped up to the challenge. Well, this is this, this is, is what you're doing. <laughs> this is like the kayak thing. It's like the 24-hour kayak record. Oh, you can't do that. No one can do that. That's never been done. You have no chance. There's no way you can get. And if, you wouldn't live long enough. At which point, I'm going. I'm in. I'm all in. Yeah, I'm all in. I'm not, all in. Not only is it you tell me it's impossible, I am definitely in. <laughs> exactly. You tell me you can't do it in 30 or 50 years. I want. I want to do it in 10. So, that's, so you're on the charge. As so I'm speak. on the charge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing. There's some, there's some unfortunate, there's some very fortunate and somewhat unfortunate echo chambers. The reason that obstacle sports exists the way it does today, obstacle racing, and it is not new by any means. We were do, we were literally competing in national championships in obstacle, many of them in obstacle racing in the nineties and two thousands, but without social media, no one, it didn't no get any traction. It. Yeah. The, High-tech series, manufactured obstacles, exactly as you see today. Nets and walls and A-frames and mm. all of the stuff you see in races today, we'll be doing exactly the same stuff. Well, and the military's done this forever for their training. It's it was, called training and boot camp, for God's sake. It was formalized right. as a competition yeah. at West Point in 1946 and is under the uh, world, it's basically under the world military games and has been since 1946. It's been yeah. around for a really long time. Yeah. Exactly the shit that we're doing today. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, Feel free. The two, in, in the 90s and 2000s, there was a high-tech national series with prize money, and it was a real, true national series. The Balance Bar, fully televised. There were, these were TV shows with money and competitions and national champions and teams um, and on and on. And then the Mighty Buddy series. These are all obstacle races, actual obstacle races that people would look at today and go, yep, that's an obstacle race. Mm-hmm. And so when people say, I don't understand the link between adventure and obstacle. It's just the words. Right. That's all it is. And the difference, well, I'm, you know, we were friends before this. We have that serial entrepreneurial illness, right? We just like <laughs> what we've got going on. We can't help ourselves. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Um, but now we're working on Primal Quest together, and in particular yes. the World Championship Expedition piece to OCR. So how's that happening for you, and how exciting is that? Uh, well, we're pretty pumped. Yeah, I'm pumped because that's where I came from. I also see the, I see the the natural progression. It's a very obvious thing if you think about it objectively, not from 
I'm, uh, I love doing Savage Race and that's what it should be. That's one perspective, but that's just one person's perspective. And plenty of people in the community will go, this is what I do, it shouldn't be anything different. The purists. The purists. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting discussion, though, because you could say the same thing about running. I run 10Ks, therefore nothing else in athletics should exist. Right. That's the same argument. Yeah. But clearly that's not a reality because if, you, if you're a dedicated road runner in 10K and that's all you do and you don't marathon and you don't do 100-meter sprint and you don't do track stuff and you don't do the ultramarathon, it doesn't negate the other ones. It doesn't that's mean right. ultra running is not valid or the 100 meters is not valid. They're completely valid. It's just not what you do. Yeah, exactly. Fine. Same with, the, same with obstacle. It goes, runs the gamut. Interestingly, one of the things that we are, we've actually implemented, we're really into it far in now, is uh, Ninja OCR. People see American Ninja Warrior on television, the NBC show, and most obstacle course racers who do, say, you know, whatever, Tough Mudder Spartan race, they look at American Ninja Warrior and they say, cool, that's great. A lot of them don't look the other direction because that's not OCR. Right. The way they do it, it's still obstacle, it's still obstacle racing because you're racing and there's obstacles. It's sure. still the same thing. Mm -hmm. If they look the other direction, they start to look at stuff like Ultra Beast and World's Toughest Martyr and, and they start to get outside that end of the world and they go, yeah, but that's not valid, which is odd to me because they're all valid. They're all obstacles and they're all racing. Well, it's a continuum, just like the running. The irony is that in adventure sport and expedition sport, it's using the outdoors and the natural obstacles and the natural terrain that is called Mother Nature and the planet to actually facilitate the sport and the competition. Isn't that really? Uh, absolutely. You know? I mean, an obstacle is an obstacle. You see it in you see it in a tough mudder. You see it in a Spartan race, you see it in virtually every race in the outdoors, is that they use the natural terrain to their advantage mm -hmm. to create the obstacles. Okay, you're going to carry this weight up a hill and downhill. They use the hill. Yeah. Adventure racing is exactly that. Right. And yes, you may actually carry an something up a hill. You might carry your kayak over that thing. Yeah, or, or your you, teammate. Or, or your, or your teammate, or your pack, or your mm -hmm. food, or your water. So you actually do it. Uh, the I think the it's this is why it's a continuum, is that Big natural terrain obstacles are still big natural terrain obstacles. Yeah. And if you go to a big scale, it could be a continental scale. You know, and we did back back in the day, we did events where you cross from, say, Tibet around Everest and then over the Himalayas and down into Nepal and India. And that's, it's big obstacles, but they're, they're gigantic obstacles. Right. But they're still real and they're still obstacles. And one of the things I'm attracted to, and I think you, you as well, is the team piece is huge. And then the mental piece, like the longer the race, the more mental a skill set and training is required to succeed, not only to survive and sustain the event, but to actually succeed. It's, it's, it's an, I think most people who go along will appreciate that it's, it gets way more than mental. Mm -hmm. For most people starting out in any sport, it's quite, it's really to do with athletic ability and physical capabilities. So if you, if you do your very first, when you do, let's say your, your first obstacle course race is Tough Mudder, very common, right? So yep. you, you've got this 10 mile thing. The gateway drug, they do this this thing, their buddies, this is the social media part, they kind of know about it because their friends did it because their friends did it and they know about it because they, they did a selfie with the beer at the end and their Facebook money. told Facebook, me so. Yeah, Facebook <laughs> told me that this is great, so therefore I'll do it. Their friends say come and do it and they do. They'll probably never run a 5K and it would never run on the road because that's right. Right. <laughs> but yeah. come out and run around a Copper Mountain at the Tough Mudder for 10 miles and, and absolutely thrash yourself for eight hours and they're all in. Yeah. And you're going, that's great. So the gateway gets them in. And at that point, it's about 
99% physical because they have probably never gone that distance. And it's physical. It's brutally physical. Muscling through it. They're very mm-hmm. big on um, team. Everybody helps everybody. Yep. That's, you know, the yep. mindset. Never climbed a wall. Mm-hmm. Never been underwater in mud. No, they've never done this stuff. And they do it the first time. Like my first race, adventure race. And I got to the end and I'm thinking, I, like one step from the finish, I'm going, this sucks. I am never doing this again. This is <laughs> stupid. Another step after, with a beer in my hand, I that was great. <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> Same, the gateway, Tough Mudder is a gateway. And uh, that, you know, that does get people involved. And they do, and it is physical, but then you mentioned mental. As you get physically more adept, it becomes more of a mental game strategically, uh, understanding what you're going to do, and thinking through how to get there. Yeah. So it becomes a very mental, Strategy. strategic thing. Mm-hmm. When you get that dialed, for some people, when they dial it all in, so they're physically uh, fit, uh, appropriate to race and do well, and they've got it, all the mental stuff dialed, then then it becomes a little more emotional. Mm-hmm. You start to appreciate more of the emotional aspects. And eventually, as you go beyond that, for some people, I mean, well, certainly in my experience, there's a spiritual component that not many people necessarily get to. Mm-hmm. I think it's more... For those people, maybe that way inclined, or they just kind of happen into it over time. So you go through the physical thing and the mental thing and the emotional thing, and then there's this kind of spiritual thing. Like this is awesome. Well, now I'm just going on another plane, and it happens. Is it strips away all the layers of who you think you are, what you think you are, everything you believe, oh yeah, belief system. Yeah, especially if you're out there in the wilderness, kind of forging either on your own or with your teammates, whatever the dynamic is. But you're kind of stripped down to the bare bones. So at some point, there's another piece of you that is exposed. That's your spiritual piece. That that is 100 percent true. I think it's also. I mean, there's there's a lot of allegories and things are going with life itself, a lot of people will discover a lot more as they push themselves further because you kind of go outside your envelope, right? So they're mm-hmm. thinking, oh, I haven't done this before. This is a new experience. Usually it's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> it's kind of suffering. Sometimes no. <laughs> Sometimes, but that's the stuff that makes you grow because you're not going to grow without being stretched a little. Right. So like, pushing those boundaries and, and getting stretched uh, definitely helps the human grow in, in every direction, physical, mental, whatever, emotionally. Uh, so they, they kind of they understand that, that that box they live in is a much bigger than they thought, uh, which to me is another aspect of sport that I think is very healthy for humans to start thinking critically and outside what they think the reality is. And they kind of ex- they ex- discover themselves through this process. And by doing Absolutely. that, you get a better human, yes. I believe. Yes. And that's this is actually, you didn't ask the question, I'm going to answer somewhat rhetorically. It's what is it about, obstacle racing and sport that really drives my involvement mm-hmm. making better humans nice it ultimately makes better humans mm-hmm. it's a very i was selfish for so long getting paid lots of money to win lots of money and get lots of equipment and go cool places 60 countries to race and be on tv for 13 years that's selfish hopefully it inspires and maybe creates some aspirational um, thoughts for people but it's still fairly selfish because everyone else is paying for me. Right. So now I'm flipping it over and I'm going, okay, spend all this time taking from sport. Now I'm going to get back and make yeah. better humans on the way through. You're paying it forward. Paying it forward. Not only that, the paying forward is, I think if you touch one person every day, positively, that's kind of, that's good. You've done your job as a human, I think. But if you can amplify that, which we do through sport, like your that's races, absolutely what we do. you mm-hmm. provide a platform where, 
you're not affecting just one person, you're affecting 5,000 people that you're marathon and their families and their workmates. So that's really 20, 30, 40,000 people yes. and their friends and maybe they get inspired. So really your touch gets very big, very fast. So then you go to the, I'm going to break the kayak record thought again. It's like, I'm not just going to break it. Right. I, this whole sport thing started, started me thinking, how do you affect the most people the fastest? Clearly, social media can be a tool if done right. It's also an echo chamber, so it can be kind of a double-edged sword. But if you think about what humans watch or see, the most humans, what do the most humans on Earth see ever at one time? What is that thing? Are they looking at the moon? Are they watching Fox News? Or what are they doing? God, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out that what really <laughs> engages humans... Please tell me humans, that is not it. <laughs> no, not even close. When you think about it, you start thinking, Big sporting platforms, Super Bowl, yes. 110 million people. That's a lot of people. And why are they drawn to that? Yeah, why are they drawn to because that? Because it's their fellow human. That's a human right? thing. Yeah, like there's a connectedness. Sure. And you, in some way, relate to that fellow human because you are well, of it, humanity. It's social, too. Yeah. So here's, here's a comment. It's, a, it's a, an astute comment from uh, some European colleagues of mine. They laugh when you say, the Super Bowl is huge, 110 million people. They go, yeah, like a club match for, for this, in Spain gets more people watching it, which is true. You get more people watching the like the league's football matches in Europe, soccer in Europe, than you do watching the Super Bowl. Yeah. Every weekend, you've got actually billions of people watching. So that's bigger than, than American football. But what's bigger than football? Like soccer. Mm-hmm. The Olympics, now you've got five billion people watching. Yeah. So you want to get a lot of people watching something. You want to be on that platform because that's got billions and billions and billions of people. Mm-hmm. Billions. Now, if you want to influence people on a mass scale, go to the big platform, do a really good job, get something that is achievable, um, aspirational, inspirational, and something that anyone can do, uh, and then do a selfie with a beer in the hand. And that's obstacle course racing. Yeah. And that's what you're doing. And that's what we're doing. You're working to bring it to the Olympics. I, I am working to put this sport together so that we meet the requirements as specified by the International Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm doing. And we're fairly well advanced. I love it. We believe, we'll believe we'll meet the criteria. We believe we'll meet the criteria next year, uh, at which point when we believe we do, and we're, in, we're, we're under evaluation uh, basically to be a sport. Uh, so at that point we say, we believe we meet the criteria. Here's, uh, you know, here's the package. Um, here's why we believe we made it, and then we apply for official recognition, basically, um, and then and then they do with it what they will. And this is a uh, this is an organisation called GAIF, by the way, G A I S F, the Global Association of International Sporting Federations, and they're the regulatory body that recognises sport. Which and they work very closely with the IOC. As of this year, they have a memorandum of understanding that it's there's no longer a two step process. Like get recognised by GAIF, now get recognised by the IOC. That's sort of one thing. You mean they're talking to each other then? Very well. <laughs> yeah. There was a period, there was a there was a political thing happened and it kind of went south for a while, but it's all good. What I see is this really interesting <clears throat> underlying, like just from birth, obviously. Like now we know a lot more about you as a person and there's this continuously like underlying thread in everything that you do, which is, which is this quest for challenge, without a doubt. Um, and doing something big with your life. 
I'm super fascinated right now yeah. as to where that is coming from. Like, was there one or two people of influence? Was there one or two or maybe one thing significant in your life that has caused you to be that person? That amount of no, Yeah, no one thing. I, my parents were obviously in, in, uh, both inspirational and freeing. They, Their approach was fairly unusual. This is um, my real parents, my adopted parents. They... They were very uh, encouraging of anything. They said, you can do anything you want. If you want to be a cum dug, great. If you want to be you, well, you, you want to be the garbage man, that's great too. So they, there were no constraints or expectations. The expectations were self-imposed. Like they were high-performing academics you know, leading their area, fields of science globally. So clearly that's a, that's a pretty... It's a pretty high bar, but it's also it's a self-imposed bar. You look at your parents and go, oh, "I think I want to do that." Totally I think so. that's normal, right? Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, they would say, "You can do whatever you want. You don't want to go to school. We we encourage you to go to university. But you don't have to. Mm -hmm. There's no need to go. You can do amazing things without a university degree." Mm -hmm. um, and they would also they also have very they were very they were kind of hippies. I mean, they they would say. When you turn 10, you can go anywhere you want. At any time, just let us know where you are. So at age of 10, it was gates open. You Off you go. So, you know, you could. I would take my little sailboat mm -hmm. on Sydney Harbour and I'd sail 16 miles out into the ocean. At 10? At 10. Mm. Young. Yeah, I was at 10. And, and I was a bit, little naughty because I didn't always say where I was going. I would, call, I would pick up a payphone sometimes you and say, oh, I'm just around the corner. <laughs> and as far as they were concerned, they didn't, they didn't, I don't think they cared that much. Um, but, you know, I would do that kind of behavior. And then uh, at, uh, at 17 years old, decided we'd sail around Australia. And that was encouraging but somewhat concerned because people die doing that. Yes, and uh, yes, do. you go into big oceans and there's vast stretches. And finally, uh, finally they <laughs> – I was living with a friend of mine from, school, from high school. And we actually ended up not going all the way around, but we ended up sailing up you know, through the Great Barrier Reef and all over the place in the South Pacific. And they were quite encouraging, but they were also a little... I can, I can imagine now, I couldn't imagine at the time. I'm like, oh, this is great. And I just imagine your 70-year-old kids taking off into the wild blue ocean on a little sailboat. Exactly. Going, Holy crap, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> but they didn't stop you. Oh, no, not at all. They were quite encouraging. Mm -hmm. they, did, they did do things like, okay, you're going to get this radio service so that you can always be in touch through the radio service, which in those days is what you had. Well, teaching you the skills to do it safely. Yeah, and yeah, and they encouraged. I'd been a teacher, instructor at a sales school since I was uh, like 15. Mm. So I knew how to sail. I like to race, so I knew how to sail, mm -hmm. which is can be bad when you're cruising around in the ocean because you tend to race everywhere. <laughs> That's not always the safest thing to do. Yeah. It can be safe because you get places fast. Um, but they would, they would do things like that. And at one point, after 11th grade, I went to Europe for a few months, and they all they did was they was here's a piece of paper with a couple of phone numbers. If you're in Paris, you can call this number. If you're in London, call that number. Otherwise, no news is good news. See ya. I love it. So I worked. Yeah, you know, I worked in a bakery. Actually, I worked in a supermarket. and I worked in a bakery, and that's how I earned my pennies to go travel. Same thing after in the middle of college. Spent most of all of 1986, so the end of 1985 to the beginning of 1987, traveling through uh, Europe and Asia and the all over the place, Russia, Bulgaria, crazy place you probably shouldn't go, Afghanistan. Please don't go there. I'm <clears throat> seeing, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was there in 86 um, on the Khyber Pass. I, I, got, I got to the Khyber Pass 
and I was thinking, this is bad. Like you can hear the gun, like the Russians are in there blowing shit up, and people screaming across the pass with limbs blown off, and oh, I'm going the other direction. I'm going into the fray, and eventually I just got my nerves got. I got my nerves couldn't handle it, and I turned around. I actually wanted to cross Afghanistan. Thank God you did. You might not be here today. Maybe not. I'm I'm almost not here anyway because I got so sick in that trip. Uh, there was a point I got a train from Gilgit down to Karachi, and it's in the higher Himalaya, kind of the end of the train line, and caught the train down. I don't remember most of it because I'd actually I was so sick I'd kind of passed out. Not kind of passed out. I was just out, and uh, got dragged. I finally woke up in a little hostel. Someone was trying to feed me a mango. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty, I lost a lot of weight. I was down to about 100 pounds. And uh, all my hair fell out. That's when I lost my hair. Uh, was it? Uh-huh. 1986, May 86. And then uh, I dragged my sorry ass into Pan Am, trying to get out of Pakistan. And I got on Pan Am Flight 2. Okay. It was one of those old jumbo jets with the two little windows on the top. And they, they took pity on me. That clearly, I wasn't in very good shape. It was basically a skeleton. And they put me up in first class. Which is which was great. So I'm there in first class, pretty much passed emaciated. out. Mm-hmm. Emaciated and passed out. I could barely walk. Uh, and then they, that flight, we took off from Karachi Airport, got over Afghanistan, and then I'm I'm kind of head lolled against the window, and there's there's MiG fighter jets right next to us. Oh, and I'm looking out the window at these MiG fighter jets, not quite comprehending what's going on, and the pilot says something about blah blah blah. Got to dump some fuel. He's not telling us there's fighter jets. We're over Afghanistan during a war. Yikes. So he dumps fuel, turns around, goes back to Karachi. And he said, ah, you know, we were just uh, told by the Russians they don't want us over their airspace. Oh, get the hell out. Get, yeah, basically get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So they did. Mm-hmm. Smart move. Went back to Karachi. Uh, and he said, yeah, this is a jinx flight. Every flight something happens. That exact, it was once a week. It was Karachi to uh, Munich. No, yeah, Frankfurt. Karachi to Frankfurt. The very next week, that exact flight, same pilot, same plane, same flight, Pan Am Flight 2 was hijacked. What? I don't know if you remember it. They threw the bodies out onto the tarmac. Oh, actually, The, yes. the pilots escaped out of the window. Yes. Yeah, I was on that flight. I was a jinx that trip because oh, something similar happened from, I caught the ferry from Dover to Calais, and then I was going to take the ferry back again to Calais, and for some reason I got distracted and went off somewhere else in Europe. Oh, I, I, I hitchhiked on a chocolate truck to Portugal. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, was on the, I was on this ferry. The ferry turned around and went back out again, but they, they, forgot, to op- they forgot to close the, the, the thing the cars drive up at the front, and it just went to the bottom. Holy yeah, it went, it like went out and sank, just like that, filled up with water, and went to the bottom, and I just got off the thing. So I didn't find out until later. But you I went, have nine lives, basically. That's sort of Not quite, because on. I always just miss, right? I'm just missed by one. Yeah. I I really believe everything happens for a reason. I don't know if you do or not, but <clears> you're kind of a perfect example of that, right? Like, here you are. Well, then I went, so when I was in London, I was still pretty sick, and I went to London. I went to the hospital, and they said, oh, yeah, here's, you know, here's stool sample, urine sample, blood sample, all the samples, and they said, come back in a few weeks. So I said, all right, fine. And I didn't. Um, instead, I went, I got in a chocolate truck, and I ended up in Portugal, and then he turned around and filled it with port and took it back to France. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I was on the chocolate truck. And then from there, I went into Morocco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from Morocco, I don't know, I can't remember what I did. I was, I think I took the, oh, I took the, 
Istanbul Express over to Istanbul okay. through Bulgaria and Yugoslavia and all those places at the time. That was exciting, but a little too exciting. I was really fortunate though because I ended up I ended up traveling with the Greek consular general, and we got bad things were happening on the train. There was people with machine guns and they were trying to gas the train, and it was bad shit. We got off in in Sofia, and uh, we escaped the train basically. Wow, that's scary. Yeah, that's it was scary. scary. That was really scary. But then I got back for some reason. I got I got a letter from somewhere, and they said, "Oh, it was real. It was the months old at this point. I think I was in." Moscow at the time, I don't know where I was, that they, the letter said, you have to get back to the hospital in London immediately. It was like a month bad old, tests. like bad, bad shit. You've got bad shit going and get back now. Mm-hmm. And at that point I was actually on my way to, to Thailand. So I think I blurred that off, but I've survived. Here I am. So your entire life is about chasing adventure. I would say not adventure per se, say, but Sounds pretty damn um, the, the unexpected. I, I guess in the in the dictionary <laughs> definition of adventure, which is a journey with an unexpected outcome, yes. Uh, yes. So everything is a journey with an unexpected outcome, and I have no idea what's going to happen with Tomorrow. all this stuff. But, but goals. 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 Goals do tend no goals inevitably uh, are realized if they're not completely insane. Even the somewhat well, insane ones. You've always been living by goals as a core value of you. As just as a human, like you're you're a goal oriented individual. Yeah, so very much so. What's next for you? What's next? Uh, in near or long term? Well, that's a good question. Um, in the long term, I want to achieve recognition. I want to get obstacle sports really moving well and efficiently. And there's things we're very fortunate in time because of what's going on in sport. Um, and I'm talking about anti-doping and safe sport and things that are really important for athletes. Because ultimately, the, the role of the sport is to provide a service and make uh, sport safer, better, uh, more accessible, cheaper. That's what sport should do for the athletes. The athletes don't care about sport, frankly. They don't, they don't, they don't care and mostly they don't know. What they care about is, can I get to this race? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be cheap enough? Is it going to be accessible enough? If you're a competitive athlete, does it give me a route to something? Like a competition of some sort. That's generally what they're thinking, and to to get all that, it's it's uh, that's why sport exists. Kubertain, Pierre de Coubertin, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who started the Mondial Olympics, didn't know it was going to be sport. He, I believe, he was. It was after the maybe the Napoleonic Wars, and it was before the First World War, and he was concerned about all these huge political and military problems in Europe and he wanted to create something that would give people a focus just like we do today like now it's more about drugs and I don't know, porn or whatever it is that people get addicted to mm-hmm. and we just create this platform of opportunity to do something healthy and get people better people to be better humans and that's what he was trying to do so the uh, being Olympic or Olympism if you read about the Olympics is really about that clearly the uh, commercial aspect relies on very high-level competition, but that's not Olympism. Eddie the Eagle won the Pierre de Coubertin Prize. Mm-hmm. Eddie the Eagle was not the best ski jumper. He was the worst ski jumper at the Olympics, but he won the big prize. Because he was a good human. He's a good human, and he was doing he was doing exactly what Pierre de Coubertin described. Mm. He was doing this thing because he just loved it, and he was passionate about it, and we did it for all the right reasons. As I think 99% of the people out there doing all sports, obstacle included, they, they love it 
they're intrigued by it. It feeds their soul in some respect. They've got a community. They've got socialization. They've got things that make us people. Lions and tigers and bears don't socialize and do this stuff collectively. We do. Right. Right. So yourself, in terms of your own value system, being a good human. <laughs> How you spend your days right now? Give me a rundown of what it looks like. And I, you're everywhere doing everything. I mean, I, we're in contact enough for me to know that you're hardly sitting still. However, yeah. um, what's that look like? Give me a day. On a very basic level, I'm usually, I wake up fairly early, but I usually think. I spend the early part of the day thinking. So mm-hmm. maybe 5 a.m. I'll be thinking for a few hours. Usually go to bed thinking about stuff. Uh, and there's a lot of processing. So biologically, our brains recover at night when we sleep and we process a lot of the daily information and then it, then it kind of congeals in our consciousness. So I have a very conscious, subconscious thing that I go in thinking about it and I wake up thinking about it. And I know I'm doing it and I do it purposefully. Mm-hmm. So there's a few hours kind of the ends of the day that I'm really kind of processing the information. And then I typically work about a 14-hour day, uh, usually seven days a week. Mm-hmm which doesn't make a good human necessarily. <laughs> but a very we're, busy one. We're getting, we're getting, Leah and I are the same. My wife and I are the same. She's got a startup business. She has a skincare business, as you know, and she's, uh, mm-hmm. she's the same. We're both driven. Yeah. But what we're discovering is this thing called a weekend, which apparently people take time off and they don't do their work stuff. Right. What so is that about? I, well, we, we've been figuring it out. Are you trying out. to bring that back into your life? Is that what you're saying? Or actually maybe for the first time into your life? Yeah. Yeah, probably for the first time. Yeah, probably for the first time. I th- no, that's not true. I think as a young engineer, I would have weekends, sort of, I guess, because it was all every waking hour when I was working a regular job was about sport. So every waking hour, I'd be up at first light, my eyes would pop open, I'd yippee, I'd run down to my kayak and go kayaking or something, and then you know, I'd be the, it would be night before I'd pack up my boat or whatever sailing boat or whatever it was. It'd have to be dark, like an impossibility to stop me. I couldn't. I would. I would actually paddle at night. I would paddle home from work at night. It would be full on dark, and I'd be getting my kayak and put my lights on, and off I'd go down the river for ten k. So, if fourteen hours a day is spent on driving this project you're so passionate about, and you're now trying to get weekends to be more about you and Leah and your life as <clears throat> individuals, separate from your work, what kind of fun are you having? What are you doing? It sort of happened a couple of weekends ago. We. Um, we built a house in Boulder and we had nowhere to live. So we <laughs> cashed in some, Leah cashed in some stocks and bought an Airstream. And we lived in the Airstream, which awesome. was super fun. Love and uh, well, we built our tiny little house. Well, now we, we're kind of cash strapped. So we rent our houses because we don't, we've got to have, we've got to eat yeah, pretty much. Exactly. And we, and what happened was we were renting our house in Boulder and we went, well, let's take off in the Airstream. So we went off to the mountains and we're working, it's, it's a mobile office. We, We've done it. We know how to do it. We've been doing it for years now. So we, we basically work out of the Airstream, but we've got, an, we've got a truck. We pull our Airstream. We might as well go somewhere nice. So we ended up in Fruta, Western oh, Colorado. yes. Awesome. Around the, the Fruta trails. And we started, and then we, we would bike in the morning and then work in the afternoon. And we're going, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> like, this is great. Yeah. Well, it's probably what a normal person does, right? self-employment is supposed to be where there is a freedom of sort. That's yeah. why we pay the high price of risk and everything associated with hard work. So rather than working 40 nowadays, we're now working like 10 hour days, but <laughs> spending it. four hours doing something really fun. I love it. Which is 10 hours is still a reasonable day, I suppose. But yeah. that, And that, then they were thinking, you know, that was really cool. And, <laughs> and then this just this past weekend, 
we uh, we made this conscious turn off the phones, drive and meet some friends down in Santa Barbara, hang out, drink some wine, go to a meal. And then we drove back over the ridge road back behind Santa Barbara and we're looking at this going, oh man, this is great. What have we been doing for the past 30 years? Yeah. Well, we didn't do this. This is a weekend, I suppose. Yes. This is really fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and time in silence or together, you know. We spend a lot of time together. We work effectively in the same office, uh, which is our home, um, or a stream, whatever it is, and we really like each other. That helps. That is so refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We really, really like each other a lot, and we kind of think along the same lines. We're really quite different in a lot of respects, uh, which that's is which is necessary, I think. Mm-hmm. We also travel a lot, so that's also, for us at least, that's necessary. Mm-hmm. But we also travel together, and we travel together really well. So I did so this little fun. trip just last month, and I went from, we went to Madrid, where I was at the first International Safe Sport Conference. This is about preventing sexual, sexual harassment and abuse in sport, um, which we're formalizing in the sport, necessary for all sports, mm-hmm. but newish. So we went, to, uh, we went to Madrid, and I was at the Safe Sport Conference, and then we took a couple of days and visited Leah's family up in the, uh, the Basque country, Bilbao, northwest Spain. Um, which is a great opportunity to catch up with a lot of cousins and mm. people that uh, we, we like to spend time with. And they have an amazing blue zone kind of life up there where they eat off the land and the food is spectacular. And uh, so we spent a few days. We drove up and back in a few days. And then I went over to Italy for the World Team Challenge in Shardana in Sardinia, another blue zone place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went over to Bangkok for Sport Accord, which is the meeting of the international sporting organizations, and then continued back to, back here, back to California for a couple of days, and went off to Manila. Um, and that was a 40,000-mile month for me, which is quite a lot, uh, too much. Yeah. But fortunately, Leah came with me for half the trip. Um, so that helps. So that helps. Mm-hmm. So the, the flight the flight time is not is not very healthy. It's Sitting in planes is not good for you. Right. Yeah. yeah, transportation in general. Transportation in general, the yeah. best, unless it's self-propelled. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so safe sport is an interesting. Thing. I could go on forever about safe sport. Humans tend to be somewhat predatory um, in nature, and I think it's biologically driven. Just like a pride of lions, you know, the male is there trying to dominate and keep the other females. Well, I think humans are not much different, and it's really unfortunate because it's not it's not acceptable. <laughs> but nope. they do; they're predators, and there's. There's an unfortunately insignificant number, but enough to make it real. A small number, but significant number of humans, males who, oh, and females, as it turns out. Correct. Male and female predators, and it's really appalling. Uh, and f- sport is a ripe environment because you've got coaches in a position of power and influence with kids. Yeah. It's a bad environment. Yeah. It's an amazing environment for the right things and an appalling environment for the wrong things. So you're putting some personal effort behind that cause? I, uh, yeah, it's kind of big on my, my personal agenda is mm-hmm. to have, to, we've got the opportunity to build safe sport into the very fabric of obstacle sports. Oh, right. Course, no federation. Ground up. Yeah. No federation has done this because they're legacy federations and they've, they've, they're kind of trying Inheriting to coordinate. bad behaviors. Mm-hmm. They're developing, they're coordinating different things, development and coaching and medical and trying to coordinate them all to create the safe sports. Some do a great job, by the way. But it's not the easiest thing in the world. So we just went from the ground up. So when I was out in Madrid, connected with a bunch of people there, and now we've got an amazing woman uh, heading it up. Uh, so Dr. 
um, I can't pronounce the full name, so I just call her Yetza. But Dr. Yetza mm -hmm. is, uh, she's a Yale professor, Harvard educated medical professional, uh, was, a, was a high jumper for um, Ghana, I believe. Incredible in, individual. So she's agreed to help you know, shape and, and head up Safe Sport as its own committee within obstacle sports, which is unique at this point. No one's done that. So that's one thing we're that's doing. That's exciting. Yeah, Super it's really exciting. exciting. If we can just as humans use a lot of that kind of energy, you know, the competitive predator type of energy and channel it into competition and sport, it'd be much healthier. Yeah. You know? But sports in general, if they're done right and if the coaches and the environment and the parents and the community that is, you know, facilitating the sport, if they set the standards and the value system, then that's generally how it develops. So you are doing that right now. You've been doing that your whole life, really. So thank you for that. In some respects, yeah. I, this is the this is the opportunity of obstacle sports becoming a sport. And there's plenty of naysayers, which is understandable because they don't understand what the benefits are, or mm -hmm. if it benefits them. And people tend to be quite inward looking. They don't typically see the, or necessarily see the big picture. But things like, say, sport and anti doping and and uh, safety standards is another one. People people misunderstand standards. They go. Oh, you're trying to standardize the sport. That's bad. It's going to be this thing that we don't do. That is not standard. Standards are build whatever obstacle you want, but it better be structurally, better be designed right, built right, maintained right, and sound enough that it copes with every possible thing you could throw it and not collapse and kill people. Right. That's the standard. Safety. Safety. That's the mm -hmm. safety standard. That's the stuff we work on with the International Standards Working Group in, in the ASTM international system, mm -hmm. which is a real standard, a real, it's the real thing. Mm -hmm. Your standards for everything, standards for airbags and cars and medicine and, I mean, there's standards for also uh, transmission of electricity and, and fuel transport. I mean, they're, they're all got standards. Why? Because humans do crazy things. Humans okay? are idiots. So we need to keep an eye on that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just that's, what, that's what we do. So <laughs> we have medical standards and obstacle standards yep. and we have these standards and all, it doesn't affect the sport. In fact, Intrinsically, obstacle sports are a dynamic, growing, unexpected thing that uh, is that goes in strange directions, and that's what we want to encourage. Sure, we enc encourage the the changes and the difference and the evolution, and the, that's good. That's healthy. Mm -hmm. That's necessary, I think. Um, hence, the is Ninja Warrior part of it, and is Expedition OCR promo because that part of it. Yeah, well, sure it is. Why not? It's it's innovative. It's different. It's it allows people to do more stuff. It's got the same goals, the same basic principles. It's great. Yeah. I think we're going to wrap. Yeah, I think that's great. So I want to thank you for your time, and I look forward to spending time with you at Primal Quest. Yeah. Working on the uh, OCR World Championship race together. That'll be super fun. Looking forward to it. You have a fantastic place here in your backyard. Oh, you thank you. throw a little bit of spear before I go or climb sure. some rope. Sure, of course. Know. We'll yeah. see uh We'll see what we got. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Ian. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, for taking us on your truly incredible life journey and helping us discover your why. And thank you for joining us on this trip to Endurance Town, USA, where we always dive deep into the story of why these humans use the common thread of endurance to weave their world. Thanks to our partners at Race Roster for making this Faces Behind the Races podcast series possible. And if you haven't yet, subscribe today to have new episodes delivered as soon as they're available. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time we go on a journey to Endurance Town, USA.
thing about it. 